Thinking Biblically About the Enneagram on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. And now for the third week in a row, I am so glad to have one of my dear friends, Dr. Ren Cherry, uh, here with us again. I want to remind you, he's the Director of Finances and Donor Relations here at ACBC. He serves on staff and does a great job just really leading and helping me in so many ways. And uh, he's also an adjunct professor teaching here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, some of our courses in biblical counseling. He's married to Terry, been married for many years, maybe I shouldn't say uh, how long, but many years. And uh, I have one son, Jack, and, and a daughter, Carly, is married to Daniel. I love Ren for many reasons. The Lord saved him late in life. The Lord is using so many skills that he had, even as a young man, and he's putting them to great use even today in ways that he serves ACBC. And by serving ACBC the way that he serves the Lord, he has missionary experience, spent some time overseas, and it's very wise and knowledgeable there, and has also been a pastor for a number of years as well. But we're going to dive in, back in today, to this subject of the Enneagram. And really, we were giving you background information on the previous two podcasts about the Enneagram that's worthy and important information. It makes what we're going to do today in thinking biblically about this personality type that's very popular, it's going to make it make sense. It's going to help you to understand how we think biblically appropriate, because we want to be fair to those who promote the Enneagram and use their own words in what they're saying. And then we want to compare that to Scripture, because the Scripture makes very clear that the world will never cease in trying to build ideologies and patterns of thinking that intend to sweep us away. These are the schemes of the evil one. He doesn't improve upon that. It just, he recalibrates in different ways in human history, ideologies that that attack in so many ways the, the Christian foundation and the biblical worldview and narrative, and sometimes in small ways, sometimes in larger ways, but but we need to stay vigilant. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in Colossians 2, 8, that we be vigilant about empty philosophies and vain deceptions. And we need to be able to to be kind and generous in our critiques, but we need to be willing to make critiques at some point, where things cross the line and uh, and how to think biblically about these things. So let's start there. We left off last time talking about Rohr, some of his theological positions and the way he views God specifically, which matters in the way that he views man as well. And so I want to start there, Ren, if we can. Does Rohr even attempt to support his positions about God and about man from a perspective of Scripture? Yeah, Dale, I would answer that question, yes. But Rohr typically supports his points by way of parenthetical reference to scriptural passages. So quite often he makes a point and he follows his statement with scriptural references in parentheses. So let me pause here and encourage our listeners to not gloss over scriptural references when you're reading a book. Get out your Bible and see if the scripture supports the point that the author or the speaker is making. Now, in Rohr's case, his scriptural references start to break down. So, for example, Richard Rohr repeatedly misapplies the biblical term in Christ to include all of creation. He endorses a universal salvation. He maintains that all of creation, if you remember in our previous episodes, remember the first incarnation that supports his panentheism, his theology that God is in all things but still transcends all things. Okay, he maintains that all of creation is already divine 
and therefore already in Christ. And he actually has a term for this. He calls it Christification. So now we must ask the question, what does the Bible say about this term in Christ. Okay, Rand, this is this is no small thing that you're describing here, and we, we cannot gloss over this. We have to to dive down a little bit because when we're talking about the term in Christ, that that matters to us in evangelical Christian conservative orthodoxy. It's it's a critical term that explains how we're redeemed and how we change. It explains the clothing of Christ. It explains the the work of Christ on our behalf. And this is the place that we're hidden is in Christ. We cannot misappropriate this with some sort of incarnation as Rohr describes here. And and I want you guys to follow these terms. It's so important that we do this. And, and what Ren's trying to help us to understand here is what we understand to be true about God by necessity impacts the way we view humanity. Okay, so if he begins in a place that says all things are divine, he must now explain man in some way as having having some divinity as a part of it and that God is in us already. So he begins to borrow from scriptural language, in my opinion, a misuse of this, which is what Ren is saying, to say that, oh, yeah, this explains how we're in Christ, Christification. So let's explain that out a little bit further and, and bring clarity to it to show the contrast, Ren, of what Rora is saying here versus what in the world the Bible says, because that's what's most important. Yeah, so when we go to the Bible to answer these questions specific to this term in Christ, we find that context is going to rule. So throughout the New Testament, the Bible is clear that the promise of being in Christ, that is an exclusive, not a universal claim. It's a designation made possible by Christ for his bride. So that promise of becoming a new creation and therefore being in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, check me out, get your Bible out, listener, that claim is reserved for those whose heart of stone has been replaced with the heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and those who respond rightly to the gospel through repentance and faith in the person and the work of Jesus, the God-man. But you, you may say, okay, so what? What is the actual big deal about all this? Well, according to Rohr and the Enneagram authors he's influenced, Man's problem is one of self-discovery. Man, according to Rohr, does not understand, according to Rohr's Enneagram theology, that he is already divine. He's already in Christ. So remember the first incarnation that supported Rohr's panentheism. Don't overlook this significant point. You see, Rohr and the other Enneagram authors teach that man simply needs to discover one's good, true self. That is, the divine self that has existed from creation, that is currently masked by what they would call the false self. So that's old Thomas Merton lingo from the 1960s. Again, what do we see that the Bible has to say about these things? Well, the Bible speaks clearly and consistently about this issue of man's problem and also of God's solution. So man is a sinner who has chosen to reject God, and the solution that God has provided is external to man. God himself in the person of Christ is the solution. Man is not his own solution, and this disqualifies any creation of man as being his own solution to his sin problem. Now, it's quite notable that Richard Rohr also rejects the notion of original sin. He actually claims that original sin is simply a burdensome mental construct fabricated by Augustine in the 5th century. Rohr maintains that man's separation from God exists in man's mind only. 
And as a result, Rohr teaches that man's most pressing need is to discover his good, true self. Well, and the implication here is that sin is not what keeps us from discovering this, right? Is there's the false self that keeps us from discovering this true self, and it's a self-empowered means to accomplish this. And we cannot miss this. This is a, a replacement of biblical theology in massive proportions, and this is functionally what he's proposing happens as we think through these personality typologies is they become really, in effect, some sort of replacement of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures to help us to see the type of man that we really are, and that's a, that's a critical piece. Yeah, so Rohr's Enneagram theology and the theology of Crohn's, Stabile, and Hertz, their characterization of man, it's unbiblical. It stands in contrast to an orthodox evangelical doctrine of a very real depraved nature of man. So original sin is a necessary component of a biblical anthropology. There is simply no biblical support for doctrine that man has a good divine nature. It's simply not there. So this is important, and that's that's a big deal. I mean, this is a massive uh, critique as we work through this from a biblical perspective. And our view of anthropology is not negotiable. So even if we like the function of some tool that's out there and we think it helps in some way, it's it's not arbitrary and it's not neutral necessarily. And we see here that this is what is necessary to understand the Enneagram appropriately. This is the theology that builds it. And in the Christian worldview, this is not a, a, a discussion that's that's open for uh, conversation. This is settled in the way that we see who man is and how we understand man, uh, and we can't compromise that. That's a non-negotiable part of our orthodox theology in, in Romans 3, how we understand 10 and following, how we understand man. That man doesn't understand. There's no one who seeks good. Man is not good in and of himself. That's what Augustine was trying to, to help us to see and that, that we believe very clearly today. So the implications of all this are massive are massive, and we have to pay attention to these. So, Ren, walk us through what some of these implications are for his belief about this this anthropology of the true self or that we have some sort of good divine nature in us. And do these contradictions of the Enneagram uh, theology with evangelicalism even, even matter to us? All right, let me put this in context for the listener. Let me ask you, what would you think of Dale Johnson if he stood in the pulpit at your church or your institution and stated, and I quote, humanity has never been separate from God? Or what if I made the claim that, again, I'll quote here, the only thing that separates you from God is the thought that you are separate from God? Let me ask you, would you be alarmed? Would you have cause for concern, theologically speaking? What if your own pastor on any given Sunday made the claim that, all of creation is divine, or stated that there have been multiple incarnations. Would you trust anything else that came out of our mouths? And these are not trick questions, folks. I hope that you would not only reject those claims as unbiblical, but also dismiss any spiritual tools or systems based on those same unbiblical statements about God and man. You cannot separate or divorce the theology from a system or a tool. I think that's a great illustration, Ryan. I mean, we we should be Bereans and hearing what our pastors say or what, what somebody says who takes the pulpit to preach us the word. And yeah, I mean, you were giving direct quotes from Roar. And 
it, it really takes an interesting spin when you say, okay, what if what if I were to stand up in a pulpit and say that? What if you were to stand up in somebody's pulpit and say that? Or what if what if your pastor was to stand up and say that? It, it does add a different context to help us to understand why these things should should hit us funny. We should we should be cautious about that because that's not uh, teaching that's consistent with the counsel of God. So as we take some of these things, what are some of the dangers of embracing this heretically based system? And I use that term heretically because it's faulty understanding about God that's non-orthodox, and it's a faulty understanding about man. So what are some of the dangers if we do embrace, like so many have, this system? Well, at its most basic level, the Enneagram magnifies self over God. So it promotes a dangerous shift in focus away from discovering the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That's the basic message of the Bible. And with this shift in focus comes a shift in hope away from the hope found in the truth of Scripture. So instead, the Enneagram can lead people to embrace a subjective man-made system, solution, of self-discovery instead of God-discovery. So adopters of the Enneagram theology can become quite comfortable learning the system and the vocabulary as they apply a self-assigned label to themselves. And this provides a means for inclusion into a group. But it always amazes me to see how God has provided so many of the things that the world seeks in the wrong places. For, for example, God has in fact provided the means for discovering God and self. It's called the Bible, and more specifically the gospel. And he has provided the means of legitimate God-honoring community in the form of the church, composed of local churches. So we don't need an esoteric system or vocabulary to be included. I would also say, secondly, the Enneagram theology mischaracterizes man's problems as something other than rebellion against the holy God, because it maintains that a divine true self has existed since God indwelt all of creation at the first incarnation. Rohr's Enneagram theology presents man's problem as one of mistaken identity, that is, Man doesn't realize that he is already divine in nature. So according to Rohr and the Enneagram authors that he's influenced, the Enneagram is the best tool available for facilitating man's journey of self-discovery of the good, true, divine self. But the existence of a good, true self is a myth. It doesn't exist. And so the Enneagram, with its own peculiar language and sense of inclusion, is essentially a road to nowhere. It's a journey to a destination that does not exist. And I would say thirdly, uh, Enneagram theology promotes a false gospel. It focuses on man's own ability to gain self-knowledge and discover his good, true self using a man-made system. So if you read Rohr and the authors that he's influenced, you'll see quite clearly that he dismisses original sin and doesn't have a solution for that. As a result, the work of the Holy Spirit and his power to point man to Jesus is no longer required under Rohr's Enneagram system of self-discovery. Any means of salvation apart from repentance of sin and saving faith in the work of the God-man Jesus of Nazareth is by definition a false gospel. And so we see in the Enneagram a system that propagates a false gospel. And a false gospel is exactly what we find that is taught in Enneagram theology. No, I think this is critical because we're not just talking about justification. Even if we were to describe that there's some sort of divine self or whatever, as he's describing here, 
we're also talking about salvation in terms of sanctification because our sanctification happens if Colossians 2.6 is true in the same way as our justification, right? Our justification is by faith alone. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.6 that in the same way in which you receive the Lord Jesus, so walk in him. It, it is a call to walk by faith consistently, focusing and fixing our eyes on the God-man Jesus as we see who we are, where it's revealed about who we are as we compare ourselves to the Scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates, convicts, reveals, and all the rest of the work that he does in John 14 through 17. And you can see very clearly that this is a different system, and we have to be cautious and careful because anything that they employ from this point on to change man uh, takes a different journey. As you said, to nowhere, it becomes, as Solomon would say, empty, vapor, like the blowing of the wind, the the snatching it at nothingness, it's very different than a Christian worldview about how people change. And we have to pay attention to that fact. And we can't gloss over that. We have to be able to understand and think biblically about this uh, in an appropriate way. Okay, so now we know all of that. But how would you respond to, to some people who claim that this system has helped them? I mean, it, because clearly it's very popular. People uh, find some sort of satisfaction in having labels that describe them or give them an understanding about themselves. So how would you, what would you say to those people who, because clearly people are asking this question, well, it's helped me. So it's helped me to improve in some way. It's helped me to improve personally. It's, it's helped me to improve in the way I work in, uh, relationally with others. It gives me more context and understanding about how other people act and how I might act to them and, and what compatibility would look like and so on and so forth. And so people say, man, it's really helped me. So what do you say to those people that, that say this, this system has helped them? First, I would respond by questioning what drove that person to look for an identity outside of Christ. So is that person a born-again Christian? And if so, Christ himself has provided a new self, a new identity in him, in Christ alone. Jesus himself took on human flesh in the only incarnation recorded in human history. He did that so that the members of his bride, the church, can be found to be, quote, in Christ. That term in Christ is used throughout the New Testament and provides a picture of the glorious exchange of repentant man's sinful identity for the Son of God's righteous identity. And God's solution to man's identity problem, it is a miracle, but it's not complicated. He has both defined and provided the only identity for man that is acceptable to God. It is the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Also, in response, I would challenge listeners to consider, what does the Bible say about self? Uh, a couple of Bible passages would come to mind. In Luke 9, 23, for example, our Lord Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is speaking of putting one's self to death, that is, denying the existence of the old self. Act as if that old self doesn't exist. Focus on me, Jesus says. I am your new identity. And in arguably his lowest moment, the apostle Peter denied Jesus the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Peter acted as if that relationship between him and Jesus did not exist. So another passage on the subject of self that counselors are certainly familiar with, I would hope, is Ephesians 4. And in that great chapter of Scripture, the Apostle Paul reminds the church to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness speaking of the Lord Jesus. 
Uh, I would also direct our listeners' attention to what the greatest commandment, Matthew 22, 37 through 40, does not say about self. And I point us here because this is the often cited proof text for Christians who are taken by a love for personality testing. So what does Jesus, the Savior, say here? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus cited two commandments. As yourself modifies how you are to love your neighbor, but we are in no way instructed to love ourselves, which interestingly is where Christopher Hurt's latest work goes. It's about loving yourself and and using the Enneagram to help you accept and love yourself. Hold on. This is an important point. And we get uh, sort of deceived by this notion in, in a lot of different ways, certainly here with the Enneagram, where we say, okay, we, we've got to learn to love ourselves before we can love other people. And uh, describe just for a second how that is against scriptural teaching. The, the Bible does not call us to learn to love ourselves first. The Bible assumes that we in our sinful nature love ourselves most. The, the way that we learn to love others is by dying to self, right? Dying to self, learning to be loved by God, learning to love God in response by faith. And then from that, as, our, as we pour out ourselves and die to ourselves, our sinful nature, our old man, that now empowers us, motivated, Second uh, Corinthians 5.14, motivated or compelled by the love of Christ now toward others. That's the, that's the flow, biblically speaking. We can't co-opt this passage and now employ secular wisdom and say that it's Scripture. I think that's the danger that you're trying to highlight here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in closing, let me just say that my research showed that the Enneagram's theological differences with evangelicalism, they're more than just simple inconsistencies. They are foundational theological contradictions. The Enneagram is anti-biblical. I know that's a strong statement, but its theology and its anthropology are in conflict with Scripture. And by definition, that makes it an anti-Christian tool for understanding man. It leads to a non-Christian way of viewing man and understanding man's problems. This tool is a, as I said earlier, it's a proverbial road to nowhere. And although the system provides its own peculiar language and sense of inclusion, it leads to a mythical destination the divine true self does not exist. So I would I'd leave you with this. I would challenge pastors to look into the theology of these Enneagram authors for themselves. I would also challenge listeners to evaluate Enneagram teaching using the lens of Scripture. So I just hope and I do pray that the information we've presented in these last few episodes have proved to be a good start for you. Thank you, Ryan. I think that was very helpful. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, what we've tried to do in the last three episodes is to give you a basic understanding of the Enneagram, personality typologies, and uh, do some, some theological work in helping you to understand how to think biblically about the Enneagram. Now, I, we're not legalistically saying Bible Nowhere commands not to use the Enneagram, okay? But what we are saying is you need to be a discerner from a biblical perspective about these types of systems. Don't just take it because 
in our cultural worldview, we think it makes sense or it makes sense of what I'm feeling about myself or the things that I see that are even weaknesses in myself or strengths in myself. We need not be deceived by that. We have to look beyond and say, okay, what does this say in comparison to the scripture? And it offers a different path forward about how to view God, how to view man, how man changes. That is at base the problem. We want to teach you to be good discerners. And I I pray that this would just be a start. Again, this was not comprehensive. We can never do that on a podcast. We had to split this one up into three because there's so much to talk about. And so we want this to be a first start for you to engage. And don't take Ren's word for it. Why don't you go read some of the stuff yourself? I think that would be important. But have your Bible open. Have an understanding of what Christian Orthodox theology is as you approach it. And let's judge it based on uh, the scriptures and not just on the way we think it makes us feel or how it's gaining popularity. Well, surely by now you've seen our new website. We are very excited about what the Lord has allowed us to do as a platform in the digital world. I want to encourage you, if you've not visited, go spend some time there. I think you'll find some resources that'll be challenging to you and encourage you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So visit us at biblicalcounseling.com.